We're in John chapter 12, in a very important section of Scripture. All sections are important. Some seem to uh, be a little more important and mysterious at times. And the words that our Lord um, speaks the week before his crucifixion are often shrouded with great mystery. What does this mean? And we're in a section in John chapter 12 where we have some of those words. You remember that disciples, excuse me, Greeks came to Jerusalem to worship during the Passover feast and they wanted to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Well, then Jesus finds out these Gentiles are there, and he never really addresses the Gentiles. After Philip, uh, Andrew and Philip told Jesus, hey, these non-Jewish people are here during this festival time of the year at the temple. They want to see you. Jesus says this in verse 23 of chapter 12, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, that in itself is kind of odd. Why didn't he engage the Gentiles? Why does he just say, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified? Well, if you really know the Old Testament well, you know that the phrase Son of Man comes from Daniel 7, and Jesus takes it upon himself in the Gospel accounts more than any other uh, title. Son of Man is a figure in Daniel's prophecy about the future of a servant who gets, does his service on the earth and then gets caught up to God. Uh, and then he rules over people from heaven. This is a prefigurement of the incarnation of the Son of God and his subsequent reign and rule from heaven over, over both the people, the Jewish people, the believers, and Greeks, Gentiles. So it's important to realize when he says son of man, it should trigger all kinds of Old Testament stuff in our heads. In verse 27, now my soul is troubled. So here is the son of God incarnate according to his humanity expressing his inner feelings. A sense of trouble has come upon him. And I don't know how long ago it was, quite some time. Uh, when I went through that, but I said, look, this is a troubled soul without sinning. Remember, he's like us, yet without sin. So whatever this troubled soul is, it's not a violation of the law of God. It's the contemplation of what he was going to endure within a week. Okay? Is it a sin if you know in one week you're going to die to go, that troubles me? Not necessarily, right? It's not necessarily a sin to be troubled about something you know is going to uh, happen. Now, we can easily, and we do quite often, think about death and sin. Uh, but he was thinking about his death and didn't sin. You know, what, what should I say? Save me from this hour? This is why I came. I came to do this. Father, glorify your name. And then Jesus, after a voice from heaven says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people got all confused. It's an angel. Um, they didn't know what it was. I, I suppose they didn't. He says this, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. And then these monumental words, now 
is the judgment of this world. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So this being lifted up from the earth is a verbal sign signifying the type of death he would die. We know the type of death he died was death by crucifixion up on a cross, right? He was lifted up from the earth uh, when he was put on the cross and then it was put in the ground. Um, He was off the earth. His feet weren't on the ground, by the way. His feet weren't on the ground, which leaves space between his feet and the ground for something to be under there, at least something mystically under there and being squished, but we'll get to that later. He got it. So these are mysterious words. We've looked at the first uh, pronouncement of this now in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. And today we're looking at the second one. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now most people reading this that have read the Bible have a good instinct to relate the words ruler of this world to the devil or Satan. I think that's a good instinct. Our Lord has spoken about this devil or Satan before in John chapter 8, calling him a liar, saying that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, uh, that he was their father, their spiritual father. They were like him, a liar and deceptive. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, after the death of Christ, after the resurrection, after the Son of Man is caught up to the Ancient of Days, after this session at the right hand uh, begins, Paul calls Satan the God of this age, sometimes world, who blinds the spiritual sight of unbelievers so that they do not see our Lord Jesus for who he is. Then in Ephesians 2.2, Paul, uh, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. We could read other passages where we find out that actually the devil still tries to derail Christians. He doesn't have like divine power. He can't force our wills to do something. Uh, who, who used to say that? The devil made me do it? Flip Wilson or whoever that was. The devil doesn't have that kind of power, okay? Suggestive power, no immediate power upon our souls. Mediate power, using means, using things, it's, it's a mystery to us, but he's able to do that, and he's able to move swiftly as well. And he's got a lot of cronies called demons who are called, in one t- passage, his angels. By the way, who else comes with his angels? The Lord Jesus. So there's elect angels and non-elect angels. The elect angels we call holy, the non-elect angels we call sinful or demons. And it appears that somehow, some way, Satan is like the head of the demons. In the book of Revelation, he's called the great dragon, the serpent of old, called the devil, and Satan. The instinct, then, that the ruler of this world refers to the devil is a right one. Somehow, by the way, just because it's a right instinct doesn't mean it means it's easy to explain what Jesus meant by these words. Come on. Feel sorry for me. This is difficult. 
Okay? Somehow, in some way, our Lord's death by crucifixion affects the devil. Remember I said there are three results assuming he's lifted up from the earth by crucifixion. One is judgment of this world. Two is ruler of this world should be cast out. Three is he'll draw all people or all, all peoples to himself. So that in some way, somehow, our Lord's death by crucifixion affects the devil. Now the million dollar question is, how? It's one thing to say that his death affects the devil somehow, some way. It's another way to say, and in this particular way it is affected. Now, to show you briefly that this is the right way to read this verse, uh, namely, assuming the prince of, the, of this world uh, to be the ruler of this world, to be the devil. Listen to 1 John 3.8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Okay, so the manifestation would be what we call the incarnation. In our civil calendar, it's what we call Christmas. The Son of God assuming human nature to himself. He does this, and he manifests himself as the incarnate Son of God, for a distinct purpose. This isn't the only purpose of the incarnation, but this is one of the purposes, to destroy the works of the devil. So this makes it very clear that one reason for the manifestation of the Son of God in the flesh is for destroying the works of the devil. Now this morning, my goal is to make sense of our Lord's words in John 12, 31b. The ruler of this world will be cast out. What does that mean? It's very important to observe that our Lord connects this with his death by crucifixion. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again because it's the million-dollar question. If it is connected to his death by crucifixion, what is the mechanics of this Relate, or the relationship between the death by crucifixion and the casting out of the Satan of Satan. How does that work? How does this cause that? How does the death by crucifixion cause the casting out of the prince of this world? It's a good question. We're actually not going to answer it today, um, but I'm going to lodge it into your head and stuff it in there, and hopefully uh, in the weeks to come we'll pursue. A more thorough answer. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples, Jews and Greeks. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. uh, To myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Now, proving that by the ruler of this world, our Lord means the devil, is the easy part of explaining this verse. And I'm going I'm to try to prove it. This is the devil. I'm going to prove it not merely from this text. I, I, I mentioned this to my wife on the way here. I think I quoted somebody several weeks ago that said, there's no way our Lord intended his immediate audience to understand everything entailed by the words he is now speaking. 
We need further revelation to explain what it means that the ruler of this world will be cast out. We need to, we need to ask if God's word sheds light on, on this language, not only from before Jesus spoke it, maybe in the Old Testament, but also afterwards. Do the apostles pick up the language of connecting the death of Christ with the demolition of the devil and the demons? And the answer is yes. I think next week we'll look at the primary place that's done. We won't get there this week. But I want to prove to you that by the ruler of the world, our Lord does mean the devil. Uh, That's the easy part. The more difficult parts are explaining what it means that he is the ruler of this world. What does it mean that the devil is the ruler of this world? I thought, though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. So we have to qualify and define what kind of power or authority does the devil have uh, in this world? And then what the casting out of the devil means. What in the world does that mean? Casting out of what? Casting out of people's souls? Casting out of heaven? Casting out of earth? All those things? And how this comes about as a result of our Lord's death by crucifixion. Those are the hard ones. What does it mean that he's the ruler of this world? What does it mean that he's cast out? And how is being cast out affected or affected or effected, caused by the death of the Savior? So here's my aim in the next few sermons, I aim to do four things. First of all, prove that our Lord means the devil. That's what I'm going to do today. That's the easy part. Second, explain what it means that the Lord, excuse me, that the devil is ruler of this world. Third, explain what the casting out of the devil means. And then fourth, the hardest one, explain how it is related to our Lord's death. I think following that order and going slow, because this has been, and some of you know this, this has been heavy on me. I've taken some breaks just because of this second uh, statement by our Lord. Now now the ruler of this world will be cast out. I, I need to go slow for my sake. And I'm assuming if I have to go slow, maybe a few of you need it too. Some of you are probably a lot sharper than the rest of us. and You could just go through all this stuff and explain it. I can't do that, so I'm going to go slow. So by the rule, by the words, the ruler of this world, our Lord means Satan or the devil. That's what you came for right there. Or that's why I came to tell you this is what our Lord means. means. Now we need to back up because our Lord has already mentioned Satan, the devil, the liar from the beginning in John 8. But Scripture also teaches us more about him. Satan, we learn from reading the Bible, is a created angelic spirit who sinned along with other angels that are now called demons not long after their creation. I think if you put it all together, I think that they were, all the hosts of heaven were created on the first day, and some of them sinned really fast. He is the diabolical enemy of God and God's people. He is also the leader of what Paul calls principalities, powers. 
the rulers of the darkness of this age and spiritual hosts of wickedness, Ephesians 6.12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against those things, those entities, those creatures, those invisible creatures, those non-space, non-embodied creatures. Weird. You remember laughing when somebody said, oh, in the Middle Ages, they, they contemplated how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. How useless that speculation was. It's actually a good question. Because if a legion of angels, a legion of demons can inhabit one soul, how what do they stack themselves up? Are you, are you seeing the weirdness? How could a, tons of demons be in one person if they don't extend in space and yet they're real created substances? I'm getting off the notes. I need to get back to the notes here. I'm just wrestling. You know, I told Dr. Dolls I was teaching a two-hour course or a one-hour course on angels at the end of this month, end of April. I said, I've been holding off John 12, 31b hoping I could get to listen to your lectures first, but it's not going to happen. So I just got to go for it. Our Lord uses the same language, ruler of this world, two other times in John's gospel. Listen to our Lord speaking to his disciples prior to his death. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming... And he has nothing in me. What does that mean? These words indicate that our, our Lord knew the devil was going to attack him somehow in an attempt to derail him from his mission. Okay, so this is, some of you have read the Bible enough to know that in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4, both Matthew and Luke recount what we call our Lord's temptations by the devil in the wilderness. Remember that? Well, this is after that. And this is before his death. And Jesus was consciously aware of satanic attack upon him. That's not going to work, by the way. Between speaking these words and his resurrection. But Jesus basically says, he's got no claims on me. Try as he has and will to derail me. Remember the temptation, if you are the son of God, and you know what? Technically, he's going, I, I know you're the son of God incarnate. You are him. Throw yourself down, you know, and, and then call on God. And Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord thy God, but worship him and him alone. The devil knew this was the incarnate son of God. Isn't that weird to think about? We're going to go to another passage that's so clear that the devil knew Jesus to be the incarnate Son of God uh, in a minute. But here we have Jesus basically saying, he's got no claims on me, try as he has, and try as he will. So recall the fact that after being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, these words occur. Remember the Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Listen to Luke 4, 13. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, 
We're not given a detailed exposition, expose, of all the devil's machinations. Is that the word I'm looking for? Yeah. Uh, Of all the devil's diabolical, dastardly deeds toward the incarnate Son of God. We only have glimpses here and there, pictures, vignettes. But that, there was this... um, battle going on between the seed of the woman, Jesus, and the seed of the serpent in the first century, that much is clear. We'll especially see that in a minute when we get to that passage I just mentioned to you a couple, 30 seconds ago. Until an opportune time, now my soul is troubled. You know, here's one of those could it be's. Could it be that somehow, some way, Satan was attacking the incarnate Son of God at that time, saying, you're not going to have Gentiles and Jews that obey you from all over the earth like the Old Testament says. I'm going to win. The devil tried to get Jesus to sin early on in his ministry. Prior to his death, right after Judas betrayed our Lord, and while being arrested by a group of religious leaders, Jesus says this, When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. Uh, I take that to mean you did not try to arrest me like you're doing now. But this is your hour. Remember how we, it's not my hour. This is your hour. And then watch this. And the power of darkness. What does that refer to? Are the religious leaders lumped in with the power of darkness? Possibly. Could the power of darkness mean, if we want to personify it, Satan and his cronies attacking the incarnate Son of God as he marches up for crucifixion? The power of darkness seems to be referring to satanic power. In John 16, 11, Jesus says, the ruler of this world is judged. Now, if we went there, we're not going because I'm trying to save time. If we went to John 16, we would see that Jesus is speaking to his disciples before his death, before his resurrection, before the ascension, but he's speaking about after his ascension. He's speaking about once the helper has been given to the disciples. You know that language in John 14 through 16. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. My father will come. We will make our abode in you. The helper, the Holy Spirit, will be endowed upon you, will be given to you, will be sent in a unique manner to help you remember the things that I have said, to, to, to help you uh, concerning the, the future. Um, well, this is the context here. So he's talking about the future, and he says the ruler of this world is judged, is already judged, okay? Because he's talking about the future, about something done in the past, namely, at his crucifixion. The ruler of the world was judged. Those words refer to a time in the future after Pentecost. And this means the ruler of this world was in some sense judged after our Lord spoke these words and before the helper was sent to the disciples at Pentecost. 
Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. Where's the first place we come across this thing, uh, this dastardly enemy of God and his people, uh, the serpent? The first time we come across this individual is in the book of Genesis chapter 3. There he is using a serpent as his agent. You see, Satan has power greater than us, but certainly not greater than God. He can use a creature of God as, to, as an implement to test, or better, um, what's the word? Tempt, thank you. Tempt, in this case, Eve. So Adam's not being a very good husband here. Eve swallows the lies of a serpent speaking to her, which we end up finding out in Revelation that old serpent is called the devil and Satan. So here is this created fallen angel who has power to use a creature to tempt an image bearer who ended up duping her husband as well, he ate the forbidden from the forbidden tree after she did. He has strange power. Eve takes of the forbidden fruit, and Adam follows her into sin. And God had threatened death as judgment, and so death comes as a curse upon man due to sin. The devil's lies duped our first parents into disobeying God's clear command. So God pronounces judgment upon the serpent, the woman, and the man, uh, by the way, in that order. And the very important words of Genesis 3.15 are worth repeating. I preached a sermon on this a few weeks ago to set a biblical context for what's going on. He... This is Genesis 3.15, the last part of it. He, the seed of the woman, he shall bruise your head, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. There seems to be, there is, conflict predicted in the future between one who comes from a woman without a man, the virgin birth, and the devil, the serpent. There's there's warfare going to go on. And where does it go on? It goes on in the context or in the place where the, the devil is the god of the world on his own turf and he gets his head smashed. But the seed of the woman is wounded in the battle. It's really interesting. This is the first promise of the Good news of the gospel, actually, in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman refers to Jesus, born of a woman without a man, who ends up dealing a death blow to the head of the devil. And surely these words from Genesis 3.15 were in the mind of our Lord while saying, Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, my death by crucifixion is going to affect the power and the extent of the power of the devil. That's what he's saying. I think that's rooted in the first gospel promise, which is in the form of a curse upon the serpent, which ends up being blessing for mankind, the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of our Lord. So that's the first time we come across this um, 
figure, Satan, the devil, uh, the serpent of old. Where's the last time he shows up in the Bible? The last time we encounter Satan in the Bible, he is cast into the lake of fire and tormented forever. That's good news. Revelation 20.10. But earlier, this is the passage I was telling you. So if you'd like to turn to Revelation 12, turn there, because we're going to camp there for a little while. Earlier in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, John shares a vision given to him that helps us understand Jesus' words in John 12. Okay, so a little about apocalyptic literature. Uh, The author is receiving revelation from God in the form of very symbolic language and things he sees that are depicting reality through um, metaphors, through figures of speech. So we don't, we can't, you know, if you've tried to read the book of Revelation and tried to interpret it literally, um, you get into trouble. You know. But if you realize there, are, the, the book of Revelation, like no other book in the New Testament, uses Old Testament imagery over and over, and we're going to see it in this passage, over and over again, you, you back off from the overly literal interpretation of it, and you say, you know, this is symbolizing something. We're supposed to get the big picture here, not all the details, because when you do that, there are sections of the book of Revelation that it would just be silly. doesn't make sense. Listen to these words. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven. Again, this is a vision. A woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. I knew I couldn't just read it without saying anything. I purposely didn't put anything in my notes because I didn't want to get off. But if you've read the Old Testament, you know that those three things, sun, moon, and 11 stars, are connected together in Joseph's dream. And I'll just let that sit there. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. Someday you might. Then being with child. Okay, so we got a woman with child, right? Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So if we're reading the book of Revelation rightly, we're going, "Uh uh-oh, I'm hearing echoes from the Old Testament about uh, somebody giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon. Uh Uh-oh. Having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and drew them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Okay? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to go, hmm, John's getting a vision about what just took place. Mary, who gave birth, is the mother of this child, but the people of God, in, in another sense, are the mother of the child as well. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's all over the Old Testament. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. Now, that's very interesting. 
She bore, the, the, this dragon was there waiting to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore the child. The child was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Nothing about his sufferings, just his glory. Goes from birth to his glory. Nothing about anything in between. We know a lot happened in between those two things. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she was a she, she has a place prepared by God. Now, now it seems like the woman is representative of the people of God. That they should feed her there 1,260 days, probably referring to the entirety of the, what we call the between the comings of Christ period. And war break out and broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Weird. What is that? Um, for our purposes, here's what this means. When the Son of God was in the womb of the virgin about to be more born, there the devil was in order to devour her child as soon as it was born, right? That's what the text says. The child is still in the womb, and somehow, some way, the devil's there ready to pounce. Why? He must have known something, right? I, I, I actually think the devil holds to the messianic view of Genesis 3.15. He knows what's in that womb. This is, this is the man that comes from a woman without a man that's going to beat me. It's going to destroy me. But she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So the devil believed in the incarnation of the Son of God. Was he saved? No. He knew the seed of the woman would crush his head. That's why he wants to kill it. Now listen, just listen to these words. This is the prophet Micah. In chapter 5, you've heard some of these words before. And some of them you probably read, but forgot them. Listen, Micah 5, 2 through 4. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are a little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Through Judah is going to come one that somehow serves the Lord, but he comes from everlasting. Therefore, this is the one you probably haven't remembered, he shall... Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, probably referring to the initial disciples, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. What is that talking about? Micah, thank you, Jesus. Micah is speaking about Jesus 
in similar language to John's vision recorded in Revelation 12. Isn't that amazing? The devil hates Jesus because he knows our Lord to be the Son of God incarnate. If you are the Son of God, and I know you are, then do this. Matthew 4, 6. The devil hates Jesus because he knows our Lord to be the Son of God incarnate, the seed of the woman, the one who was manifested in order to destroy the works of the devil. Here's quoting somebody else. Uh, Satan attempts to destroy the child as soon as he is born, as Herod did in Matthew 2, 1 through 18. Herod's action was the first in a series of satanically engineered attempts to prevent the accomplishment of God's salvation. Satan tempted Christ in the wilderness, Matthew 4, Luke 4, and was active in the background when Christ cast out demons and confronted opposition from Jewish leaders. Revelation, the book of Revelation, encapsulates all this opposition in the single picture of Satan seeking to devour the child. Just a brief little statement. Passing over Jesus' earthly ministry, it arrives immediately, that is, this section of Revelation, arrives immediately at the ascension and enthronement of the Messiah. Her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The Messiah himself is beyond the reach of satanic delusion. He can try to derail, and he did. But he can't get through. He can't win. So subsequent to the ascension, Satan turns his attention to the woman, the followers of Messiah. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He is like a roaring lion seeking he may, whom he may devour. Why is he roaring? He's mad. You know why he's mad? Because in the end, God wins through a man who comes from a woman. And the woman is the one that the devil got to first. Like, ha ha, I got to... I got to the woman, and God says, I'm going to get to you through her seed. So the devil knew that Jesus was the Son of God. You know who else knew and yet were never saved? Demons. Demons knew that Jesus was the Son of God during our Lord's earthly ministry as well. This is Matthew chapter 8. You can turn there if you want. Verses 28 through 32. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men. Aha! Coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly, they crowd out, saying, now listen what they say. What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? But who do you say that I am? 
Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember that in Matthew 16? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You got my identity right. I am the Christ, but I'm also the Son of God. Here they are confessing the Son of God in flesh, though. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Stop. What in the world? They knew that there was a time for them to be, let's say, ultimately destroyed and tormented, and that it was not yet that time? Seems like it. Now, a good way off from them, it gets weirder in some senses, Now, a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons, ah, look at this. They begged him. What does that mean? Who's in control here? Not the demons. So the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. You ever heard the statement by Luther? The devil is God's devil. He's got a chain. And he only gets let out so far. And when he starts to usurp a little more turf than God's purposes, he pulls it back. They knew Jesus was the son of God. This is I think fascinating. They knew torment was going to come their way from the Son of God. They knew that torment was yet future. And so that's why they said, hey, this is, it's not time for this. They knew he had more power than they had. They begged him. What does that assume? Ultimately, you're the one in control here. Satan hates Jesus, as do his angels, the demons. Satan tried to derail our Lord's mission, but failed. He knows his time is limited. He knows he's been defeated. He knows time is not on his side. You know the difference between D-Day and V-Day? Some some of you do. Uh, D-Day is when the battle Begins the battle that ended World War II. V Day is the announcement of its success. We could look at the incarnation in one sense as D Day, here is the battle. The battle has begun. The seed of the woman is here. And V Day would be the death, resurrection, ascension. Okay. Can we go to one more passage? Oh, sure we can. Because I told my wife, we're just going to be all over the place this morning. Uh, But hopefully you start to see all these things. You're going, oh my, whatever that means, it's huge. And I'm glad he did that because, uh, because he doesn't have the power and authority he once had, though he still dupes and he still is dastardly and he still has his cronies that work with him. If I'm in Christ, I'm okay. So let's go to Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 27. Again, another passage, I think, to help us understand what's going on here in John 12. 
Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 27. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Okay, so his power is satanic. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. What is that? The devil, through the serpent, got to the first Adam through Eve. But the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, is stronger than the devil and beats him on his own turf and then plunders his house. And one of the reasons why... Um, we know this actually took place is because we live in 2023 years separated from when this actually took place at the death of the Son of God. And I'm getting uh, into the third part of this passage. And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. I'm going to show you that what that means is I'm calling Jews and they're coming. I'm calling Gentiles and they're coming. And nobody's going to stop me. And they're going to be Gentiles from all over the face of the earth until I come again. And we're some of those people. He does this by virtue of his work accomplished and by virtue of it being announced to sinners like us. You might not be able to put all the mechanics of how the death of Christ affects the demolition of the devil together, but you can know that it has. And you can say, along with that death was not only the demolition of the devil, but also satisfaction to divine justice. One who stood on behalf of others, in the place of others, took the punishment due to those others, satisfied the wrath of God, satisfied the justice of God, satisfied the law law of God as an act of obedience. Keep that in your head, because that's very important. No one can take it from me. Remember Jesus in John 10? They, they, can't take, they can't take the life of the incarnate Son of God from him. Why? Because that very person is God. So he has authority to give it up and to take it again. Destroy this temple and in three days, I'll raise it up. Remember that one in John 2? So this is a voluntary death that ends up satisfying the justice of God so that whatever death is for believers, it's not the same as it is for unbelievers. 
If you obey my word, if you believe my word, you'll never die. You'll never die as death. Um, you'll never die the death of condemnation. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that? All that's related to this, these monumental statements of our Lord. Well, I finished a few minutes ago. But I announce to you, the incarnate Son of God, the skull-crushing seed of the woman, he takes care of our guilt, he takes care of all of our enemies, he procures righteousness by his obedience, he earns that reward for us, and he confers it upon us freely. We're we're spoiled, and we should uh, sing uh, gratefully in light of it. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Uh, even these mysterious words and sections of Scripture that um, tell us uh, some things that were going on that are odd to us, but they are real, about that behind-the-scenes warfare that was going on in the soul of our Savior while he walked this earth. Thank you that he overcame all obstacles, never sinned, joyfully obeyed, saw the reward beyond the sufferings and earned glory for us. Help us to sing in light of this. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.